What a nightmare. The Orioles have been a walking doormat for teams to get right. For the Yankees, that was not the case. And the games were in the Bronx. The league's worst team came in and topped Aaron Boone's squad, taking two of three. What happened? And how pivotal is this four-game set with the Blue Jays coming up? Derek Jeter will be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame Wednesday. His old teammate Nelly and I will honor him on his Hall of Fame career. Yankee Spanish radio announcer Ricky Ricardo will do the same. And he takes us through the story of saving John Sterling's life last week. It's a jam-packed Derek Jeter Hall of Fame edition of the Pinstripe Pod coming at you next from the New York Post. Hello and welcome back to the Pinstripe Pod, our Yankees podcast with the New York Post. It's Chris Sheeran here with my co-host, four-time Yankees World Series champion Jeff Nelson. You'll hear our thumbs up. Met fan producer Jake Brown as well during the show. Follow us all on Twitter at Chris Sheeran, yes, at NYNelly43. And at Jake Brown Radio, Yankee Spanish Radio play-by-play announcer, friend of the program, Ricky Ricardo, joins us in the second half of the pod for a fun conversation. We'll talk about the awful Yankees weekend against the Orioles, of course. We'll talk Derek Jeter, who's going into the Hall of Fame. And uh, we'll also hear that uh, story about Ricky Ricardo saving John Sterling's life the other night as uh, Hurricane Ida passed through the tri-state area. But first, let's talk a little Yankees baseball with Jeff Nelson. And Jeff, first. Let's talk about just the awful weekend that was against the Baltimore Orioles. They've been the doormat for the rest of the league to get right, Jeff, and the Yankees dropped two of three. I I don't know what the hell is going on with this team. They pull you back in, they rope you back in, they win 13 in a row, and since then, they've won two of their last eight games. So what have you seen recently from this Yankee team, especially the uh, series against the Orioles? Well, pitching, obviously. You know, Montgomery couldn't, he got into the fifth inning and that was it. And then yesterday, the experiment continued with Corey Kluber and, and Heaney just can't pitch out of the bullpen. I mean, he had some, a couple good starts with the Yankees and the last one and all of a sudden he goes into the bullpen. So obviously he's not a bullpen guy and he, and you put him in a situation that, that right now he's not succeeding. So it's been pitching. You're going to have a Toronto Blue Jay team that's hot and they're going to, they're right on your heels. You got a half game lead over the Red Sox for that top wild, wild card spot. And you could have lost all three of the Orioles. You probably should have lost all three to the Orioles, but you wind up losing two out of three. So obviously disappointing. It's so confounding, and I'm glad you brought up Montgomery because it is so confounding with him. He did come out of the All-Star break, and and he was pitching well out of the All-Star break, and then you get a start like you get against the Orioles, and it just makes you scratch your head. Like, what the hell? It's not only him, though. You look at the, the rest of the staff against this Orioles team, and you look at the lineup, and you got to scratch your head, too. How do you get no hit? through six, seven innings against the Baltimore Orioles when a team like the Rays, they, they've lost one time to this team. I just don't, I don't get it. I don't get how Montgomery is nibbling against the Orioles lineup and I don't get how the Yankees lineup is getting no hit against them. It just makes no sense, Jeff. Yeah, against two guys, what it was, uh, Ellis threw five and then uh, the next guy threw an inning. So it would have been a bullpen no hitter. It's you know, Montgomery is a decent starter, but he's right now a back-end 
of the rotation guy. He's a four or five, you know, there for a while. He was one of the most, he was one of their most consistent guys there in the beginning of the year. But he's one of those guys that, you know, I don't know if he loses focus sometimes on the teams that he plays. Seems like the teams that he pitches against that have great good lineups, he seems to concentrate a little bit more. And then with the Orioles, maybe that's what the whole Yankee team did. They took him for granted, said, okay, the Rays are beating him up. The Red Sox are beating him up. It's our turn, too, to try to get and gain some ground because, you know, the Rays have lost what they lost two out of three themselves. So it, I think it's focus. I think sometimes teams lose focus with the, and even players lose focus with the teams they're playing against. I know we're in this area where analytics kind of rules everything and and it wouldn't be a pinstripe pod if you and I didn't bring up analytics but it's not going to be analytics as a whole it's going to be the decision to bat Joey Gallo second and my brain just exploded and and I went to the game with Jake when was that Saturday Jake yeah and you you left in the middle of a no hitter which I get the, the kids were <laughs> the kids were hot I was baking out there I got sunburned um you left him like this in the six I think and yeah. then Gallo hit the homer after he left the whole game sharing he's like you can't bat him too you can't bat him too and then the eighth he hit the homer not in front of you he hits the home run, but in 147 plate appearances now with the Yankees, he's hitting 134. He's got six doubles, six homers, 13 ribbies. He's walked 28 times. He struck out 57 times in 147 plate appearances. His on base is under 30%. His slugging is 73 under the league average as a Yankee. His OPS is almost 100 points below the league average as a Yankee. I just don't understand how you're batting a guy like that second. And batting second this year, Jeff, he's one for 19 with nine strikeouts and five walks. Please help me understand this. I can't because they uh, remember they that's their spot that they hit their guys in to try to get them right. Remember Judge? Judge has hit second for... You know, for the last couple of years, they had Rizzo up there, and now they think Gallo's the answer. I don't get it. So so here's my thing. It, it, I get it. If you walk a lot, they like that, especially at the top of the lineup. You're, you're on base. But if we're all about numbers and we're all about the on-base percentage, you got to look at Gallo's on-base percentage. With the Yankees, it's 299. I mean, that's... That's that's ridiculous to put him in the two hole. And I know, Jeff, to your point, you want to get him in there to get him going. But at the same time, walking to me and you tell me if I'm wrong and if I'm wrong and if you say I'm wrong, you're a former major league player. Fine, I'll I'll, I'll take the L and I'll and I'll be on my merry way. But if you're walking, you're passing the buck to the next guy in the lineup and you're waiting for the two, three run homer again. And that's not what this team was when they were winning 13 in a row. That's not what this team was when they had to fill in all these injured guys and they were winning the way they were winning. You know, that's not who this team was. This team was doing the little things, playing small ball, advancing the guy, scoring the run, the old fashioned way. It wasn't hitting three run homers. It wasn't hitting two run homers. It was playing baseball and now they're not doing that. And now we're kind of seeing them revert to what they were when they were scuffling early in the season. I I just don't get any of it. Please help me understand. Their thought process is just like you said, you get Gallo on and walks right now. You try to get him on and for Stanton and Judge or Judge and Stanton. And, and, you know, Rizzo wasn't getting on at the pace that they wanted. And they said, okay, let's put Gallo up there. He's at least can walk. He'll, we'll take his strikeouts on occasion. He's had, what, three big home runs since he's been here? Maybe maybe four. They've been game changers. I, I think that's his uh, contribution so far. I mean, he plays a good defense, but 
you know, that's that's neither here or there. But I think they're looking at it as, okay, he can walk and he can get on base in front of Judge and Stanton, and that's going to be our best way to score. And I don't I don't get it. But, you know, you want people, you want guys to be able to put the ball in play, but they, they don't. They, they said, okay, we'll take the walks. There's bigger fish to fry guys here, though, because, you know, Gallo, he's had a couple big hits. He has the average sucks. He shouldn't be two. But how about the going with this big Blue Jays series, Jonathan Loisaga? This is the guy who's been the face of the bullpen. I mean, I was there Saturday. Chapman implodes with the walks, has control issues, you know, held him into one run. The Yankees couldn't come back. But Jonathan Loisaga now, when you hear the words rotator cuff strain, Jeff, you could speak better than this. I don't know if that means a couple of weeks and he's back for the playoffs. I think there's a chance that he's out for the year, and that could be a Yankee killer to shear in a bullpen that you talk about will be making or breaking the Yankees in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm going in for surgery on October 1st. I I, I could tell you, it, it, every anytime you have anything going on in your shoulder, if you see a shoulder strain, if you see a forearm strain, if you see an elbow strain, it's never good news. Now, look, you don't want to speculate. You don't want to think that Loisica's lost for the season, but there is that thought in the back of Yankees fans' minds that one of the most consistent arms out of that bullpen the guy that you need for two innings, you know, in most games to patchwork some innings because your starters don't, aren't giving you length. Look, I think I didn't really take Jeff's point in our last podcast to heart the way I should have with Kluber. I thought that the Yankees uh, were doing the right thing by getting him back up here. But at the same time, you, you look at his last start, his second start back, and Jeff hit the nail on the head. You can't be doing this. You can't, especially with the bullpen the way it is. You cannot have a guy like Kluber work his way back at the major league level at this point in the season. This is not May. This is September for crying out loud. You cannot be putting your team up against the wall the way they're putting them up against the wall, especially after Montgomery didn't give you length. You know, you look up at the scoreboard and you see Montgomery with 80 pitches in the fourth inning against the freaking Orioles. That's a major issue. And now with Loisaga on the shelf on the 10-day IL and probably, as you just said, Jake, as you just alluded to, maybe at a little longer, who the hell knows what's going on with this bullpen? And Jeff, as we get down to brass tacks here in a 2021 season, you were you were battling the Rays, you thought you were, for the division. And now you're kind of looking at that one-game wild card. And after Garrett Cole, if the Red Sox get into the Yankees bullpen who the hell knows if they even get past that wild card game yeah and I don't even know what's going to happen with the Blue Jay series because you're going to you're going to have to piggyback Chapman every time he comes in to close that once he gets a guy on you're going to have to get somebody up and now you don't have Loisica Loisica is a huge loss I mean this guy's had a fantastic year you can close him when you need him you can pitch him in any inning pitch him multiple innings he's at least he's going to be shut down 10 days, and that's without throwing. So it's going to extend more. It might extend until the end of September, and that's if they get him back. Once I saw that rotator cuff strain, it's never good news. And, you know, if you have to operate on the shoulder, it, it's never good news again because those those type of surgeries you have a tough time coming back from. You know, you always have something going on that, that whether they, <laughs> they got to go in there again, they have to tighten it down, they have to loosen it up, whatever they're doing, that's a really tough injury to come back from. And you know the the Yankees bullpen is starting to pay the price as far as the usage that they've had and now I don't know where they go in the ninth inning after Chapman because Chad Green he'll he'll save maybe one out of five games you know he's just not the guy that you can pitch in the ninth inning so I don't know where they go and I knew this Kluber thing was going to be a mistake and you know I, you look at the beginning of the year they put they brought him up 
and his pitch count wasn't high, and you know that, and he falls apart after two or three innings, and, and even the other day of his first start. You can't afford that at this time of year, and they're just continuing to use this as an experiment, and it costs them. It, it's cost them two games already. Yeah, and you know the four-game losing streak, let's not uh, forget about that, and then you know you can't always rely on Garrett Cole to be the stopper and then just pass the buck. Oh, Garrett will stop it. That doesn't happen in the postseason. You know, Cole will get you. Well, he'll give you length. He'll give you six, seven innings uh, in the wild card game. If the Yankees are uh, fortunate enough to get there, especially with all the bullpen issues, they have a huge, huge, crucial four game series starting against the Blue Jays as we tape this here on a Monday. So Monday through Thursday uh, against the Blue Jays. Um, Monday at one o'clock and then Tuesday through Thursday at seven o'clock. And then of course the subway series against the Mets, this one over at city field. And this is a special one because it's the 20th anniversary of uh, nine 11. And we all know what baseball and football meant to people 20 years ago around this time of the year, uh, sports in general just was able to give people something to fall back on and, and feel normal for three hours after what we went through in the tri-state area and down in Washington, D.C. And really, you know, everybody felt that it. it reverberated throughout the entire country. But with all the issues with the Yankees right now, remembering September 11th and the Subway Series this weekend, it'll be good to get a little positivity going this week. And that is, of course... Derek Jeter being inducted into the Hall of Fame, uh, and that's going to be something special, obviously. And now, Jeff Nelson, let's honor the captain, number two, Derek Jeter. Well, you know that's how they're going to they're going to introduce him at the Hall of Fame. You know that I'm fortunate enough to get to see him not quite often, but you know when I'm doing TV with the Marlins, I'll, I'll see him if he's on the field. You know he's he's there, he's working his butt off as a president and also owner of the Marlins. But what a blessing to watch this guy from his rookie year all the way basically until he ended. You know I got to play six years with this guy. He was amazing. Let's sit back, Jeff, and let's hear a couple of highlights from your former teammate's iconic Hall of Fame career. at the left field going to be a tough play Jeter on the run makes the play and flies into the stands oh what a play by Derek Jeter Derek born in New Jersey as a youngster the family moved to Kalamazoo and he wanted to do one thing play for the Yankees the 3-2 that one's drilled deep to left field going back choice looking up see ya 
All calls there, courtesy, of course, of Michael Kay on the call on the Yes Network, just a part of uh, the iconic career of Derek Jeter. Uh, one call we didn't have there was obviously the flip play. We didn't forget about it, but Jeff, just you know, call after call, play after play, year after year, 14 all-star appearances. Uh, just what made this guy, you, you play with him for six years, what made him so special? Well, it was, it was funny because, you know, you go all the way back to spring training, and, and I don't think Mr. Steinbrenner even thought that he would make the team. And Joe Torrey took a chance on having him start. He says, no, no, no. And they were going to make a trade, not trade Derek Jeter, but they were going to make a trade to get a shortstop. They're going to trade Mo. Yeah, to try <laughs> for Felix Fermin out in Seattle. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, Joe Torrey stopped it. So did Gene Michael. He said, no, you got to give this guy a chance. But I think from day one, he, he was always the smartest baseball player I've ever played with he always was in you know you talked about the flip always in the right place at the right time and from day one when he when he stepped on that field at Yankee Stadium we had a lot of veteran guys but he led by example and he he had such a passion to win you know and and, you know they think it's cliche when he says oh you know if we go we don't win a World Series it's a disappointing year but that's how he thought And, and that's how that's how it carried through the clubhouse so you had a young kid that was a leader that, you know, he went out and you never saw him dog it down the line. You never had to worry about the manager going up to him and, and trying to set an example for the rest of the team. Uh, he was a guy that for 150 to 100, 162 games, he, you knew that you were going to get 100% every single time. That year in 96, he was probably the most a clutch hitter that I've ever seen. You, you know, whenever we needed a big hit, he was up and he provided. Just a couple more I want to ask you before we get to Ricky Ricardo. The first one is there's a lot of people on Twitter. You see it all the time whenever Jeter's name gets mentioned. Well, he was the beneficiary of the lineup that was around him. And I don't I can't begin to tell you how much that pisses me off. Because this 2021 Yankee team, all of these guys should right. be benefiting from the guys around them. Exactly. And and no one is putting together a career. And I know batting average isn't really looked upon as something special anymore. But when you look at what Jeter did in his career, regardless of who was around him in the order, he always came up and he came up clutch at the at the exact right moments, Jeff. Well, he always loved the big moment. You know, it's, it's, you know, there was always a question every time it said, okay, you look at all the shortstops around the league. Now, defensively, Omar Vizquel was the best. I mean, cause he played in that same era. Best defensive shortstop that I might have ever seen. But then you had, they were saying, oh, you have A Rod, you have Garcia Parra, you had Tejada. Who, and then you throw Jeter in there. Who, who would you rather have? You know, yes, you have more, maybe the other guys had more power. But out of anyone, I, I'm taking Jeter all day. And I don't care if I was played against him or with him. He, to me, he was, he was the complete player. As far as defensively, he never hurt you. He might have not been as flashy as everybody else, but he made the good plays. I mean, and he he made some tough plays. So I thought he played a really good shortstop. You know, he he hit. He did his base running skills. I mean, he did everything right. Was he quiet? Like, was he a quiet like off the field? Like, he's not the guy who's you know going out drinking with you and Charlie Sheen. I assume after the '98 World Series. I don't know. We know the gift basket stuff off the field was a, a big story with Jeter. But what was Jeter, the teammate and the uh, the party animal? What was he like? Yeah, well, you, you know, you never read anything about him, so obviously he he ducked as much as he could if he if he did duck anything. You know, he, he was raised well. His mom and dad are really nice people. I used to do some things for his Turn 2 Foundation, and, and I would always see him and his sister and uh, the parents. The parents are outstanding people, and I raised them right. I mean, they, you know, you never – that's the thing. I think New York wanted to try to catch him in something. He's got to be some kind of controversy on Derek Jeter. There was never. 
you know, he kept himself out of trouble and, you know, he went out, you know, everybody goes out, but, you know, he did it in moderation and, and, you know, he knew he had a job to do on the field and that he, you know, in the winter time is when he would let it go, I guess. But as far as a leader, he's a quiet leader. He didn't, he wasn't a rah-rah. We didn't have rah-rah guys in our clubhouse. You know, we didn't need the guys that, you know, stand up, stood up in the middle of the locker room and started yelling and screaming and doing whatever. It just wasn't that way. But, you know, he led by example and he knew that every time he put his foot across that foul line in that field, that you were getting 100% all the time. And, and that's and when you have a young kid doing that, then everybody else is looking at themselves and saying, what well, if this kid's doing it, we better do it. Last one for me before we get to Ricky Ricardo, the Spanish play-by-play for the New York Yankees on WADO. Uh, and that is this. As a fan, I know where I was with the flip play. You were with the Mariners, back with the Mariners in 2001 when Jeter was taking on the A's in the ALDS, just as a player in the league, what were some of the guys on the Mariners? When you guys saw that highlight, what were you guys thinking when you saw that? I mean, were, were guys just in awe of what he, where he was and what he did on that play? I'm just curious as to what his contemporaries thought of that play besides the fan, because I know what fans think of it. Well, we thought we were playing the A's. I mean, they were in the same division. I think they won 102 games that year and they came in and, and they came in second place. So we thought we were playing in the ace, but it didn't it didn't surprise me because I've seen this many a times. He's always been in the right place at the right time. You look at the jump throw. You know, I wasn't there when you played the highlight where he dove into the stands. I think uh, Tanya Sturtz was actually on the mound then. And, you know, he he went back in the outfield in shallow, in, in shallow left or shallow center. He just made so many good plays, uh, and he played hard all the time. And the thing of it is, is he gave up his body all the time. And, you know, he didn't care – if he's diving in his stands, you know, diving out in the outfield, doing whatever, breaking up to, uh, he was really one of those smart base runners as well. He might not have been the speediest, but he was a smart base runner. We always did first and third play. If he was ever on third, we had one of these that he stole home. I mean, we had one of those plays that, okay, the guy would get hung up in, in between first and second, and we would wind up stealing a run whenever we needed it. And he was always usually the guy on third base. You know, I don't think there's anything that you can really say bad about him or, or say, okay, he wasn't that. I was really upset when and later in his career this said, oh, you know what, why did the Yankees sign him to that deal? You know, he's not a shortstop anymore. He was still great all the way up to the last day. Let me close with this because I have one point on Jeter, and I I will admit this here on the Pinstripe Pod, that one of my first posters, courtesy of the Scholastic Book Fair, you probably remember those, bring your kids to the Scholastic Book Fair. I had a Derek Jeter poster back in 1998. The first year I moved to Connecticut, that fall, Yankees won the World Series, Nelly's team. My family was a Yankees fan, and for, I believe, 98, I was a Yankees fan. And I even had a Derek Jeter poster, and I will admit it on the record uh, that he, you know, he captivated everyone's attention. He was the man, and I had the poster on my wall before my life was ruined, and someone turned me into a Mets fan in 1999. I was at one point a fan, I guess, of Derek Teeter, and then I hated him. You know, he he was hated by so many others, which is the ultimate sign of respect. You hate a player like that, it means they're doing something right. So I went from having a poster on my wall to hating Derek Teeter. What a turn of events. Congrats on getting in the hall. You must be a pushover. I mean, yeah, you how, go one year after the Yankees win, and then the next year you're going to go to the Mets. How? Who some does friend that? in Connecticut transferred me over. I don't know. I was Giants first, and then Jets, and I don't how know. Do you, how do you go? Oh my God, you were Giants too? Well, yeah, I was. I love Tiki Barber. Ninety nine, two thousand. They made the Super Bowl. I fell in love with the Giants, and then I guess Chad Pennington and Vinny Testaverde reeled me in. We need to find this uh, friend in air quotes and get him. How do you get talked into that direction? Yes. How? Uh, 
misery, nice colors, orange and blue. I don't know. I don't know how it would happen, but my life went downhill. After Nelly, you're going to have to help me understand this. You go from watching the best team yeah. of all time in 1998, and then you say, nah, I'm good. I want to. I want to go to the franchise who hasn't won since 1986. Yeah. And I'm not even <laughs> friends with that kid anymore. He lives in like Virginia or something. And then oh he stayed God. as a Met fan. Yeah, yeah it, it's <sighs> unreal. We're gonna we're gonna have to open up this onion, but an, at another at another point, maybe in the next podcast uh, when we do our crossover, maybe next Monday, a week from today, when we do our crossover edition, we'll let Figgy know that this guy used to be a Yankee fan. <laughs> I think I've told him he's definitely given me some crap for it. But. Uh, we'll we'll dig, we'll dig into that next week. But first, we're gonna uh, take a we're gonna step aside, take a break. When we come back, we'll welcome in Ricky Ricardo. We'll talk some more Yankees. That's next, right here on the Pinstripe pod from the new york post as promised joining us now wado spanish radio yankees play-by-play voice follow him on twitter at rr underscore ricardo fan it's ricky ricardo thanks for joining us brother we have a lot to get to so let's get right to it first and foremost nelly and i ended the first segment by honoring Derek jeter but uh, we also ended the first segment by talking about the Yankees bullpen. Uh, so really quick, I just want to get your thoughts on Jonathan Lewisica going on the 10 day IL where this team is two and six in their last eight. What say you, Mr. Ricardo? Big blow. That's a big blow to the Yankee bullpen. Lewisica has probably been their most consistent reliever all year. His velocity has been up. I think they finally defined his role. You know, in years past, you didn't know if he was a spot starter. They had him stretched out for a while, but I think this season when he was finally healthy, they basically said, look, you're going to pitch one inning. Occasionally might get more than three outs. So with a defined role, I thought his velocity had gone up. His confidence had gone up. It's funny because I, I ran into him out in the street on Saturday, after Saturday afternoon's game, uh, we were in traffic together coming out of Yankee Stadium. It was like, roll down the window, one of those kind of things. And I asked him how he was, and he, he didn't specifically tell me that, you know, he was going to be on the DL the next day, that there was an issue. But he kind of hinted at me that there was some news about him coming, and we and he just left it at that, which, I, which you know, was peculiar to me. But since the days of maybe Mariano, as the setup man to Wetland, I don't think the Yankees have had maybe as hard a thrower and as dominant a guy as a bridge to their closer as they've had this year with Jonathan Loisega. And, you know, with Chapman not being 100% reliable, nobody's 100%, but you know what I mean. Without him being at his best, I I thought the Loisega blow was even a bigger issue when I found out yesterday because you really don't have 100% confidence with anybody at uh, at the back end of that bullpen. So let's hope. Look, I've got my doubts, but let's hope that he can get back at some point here in September and be able to help out the team in October. Uh, but I think 10 days will be the minimum with Low Ice, the guy. I'm just hoping it's not the rest of the season. And shoulder's never good. Whenever you hear that new news with the rotator cuff, it's never good. Yeah, no, and he's had issues in the past. You know, so uh, he's thrown a lot this year. Remember, I, I don't remember him being... This I'd have to go back and look and see what his high is as far as innings thrown. But he throws very hard for for not a very big man. You know, a la Pedro Martinez, these guys that, that have a lot of torque. He's not a very big, big, strong, physically built guy. So the toll it takes on the body and 
Jeff, you know this better than anyone else. And for a relief pitcher late in the season here, he, he just might have been running out of gas and maybe threw one pitch too many at 99, 100 miles an hour. He was consistently up at 99, 100 miles an hour in his last outing. But the control hasn't been there. There may be the command in the last couple of times that he's gone out there. So let's just hope he can contribute towards the end. And if not in September, hopefully he can get him back to the postseason. Ricky, we uh... – we honored Derek Jeter too before uh, we brought you on. Nelly and I did, and we talked about his historic, iconic Hall of Fame career. We played some highlights to dive into the stands, his 3,000th hit, uh, the walk-off hit in the final home game that he played in his career before heading up to Boston that year before he retired. And of course, he's going into the Hall of Fame on Wednesday. So just wondering, and the flip play, we talked about that too. Just give us some Derek Jeter memories from your time as a fan, from your time calling games what do you remember most about the shortstop i remember distinctly saying kalamazoo michigan (laughs) (laughs) this tall tall, skinny kid out of kalamazoo michigan is supposed to be you know the next great yankee shortstop yeah you're, you're you're kidding right and what came to mind was Okay, the only other Jeter I've ever heard was of was a guy named John Jeter who was an, out, uh, an outfielder, a spare parts outfielder, years ago for the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Chicago White Sox. And, and I, you know, the correlation came to my eyes and, oh, could this be family of that John Jeter who was just, you know, a, a fourth or fifth outfielder? So I kind of downplayed it. And then obviously when, when, when Tony Fernandez gets injured and everything happens and Derek gets the job and he hits that home run in Cleveland, you know, oh, you know, okay. And, you know, the kid's wearing number two. Uh, they must believe in this kid if they gave him that low of a number. But for so many years, he was not just a baseball player. He was a New York City icon. He was a New York City, and I, I don't want to use the word celebrity, but just a piece of the fabric of the city, an extension of the Yankee team that went beyond the sports pages, you know, to page six and, and everything else. You would run into him occasionally, you know, I did anyway, uh, on the social scene late at night. He was always a gentleman. But for a guy that was able to navigate being a Yankee superstar, at the same time navigate being a major New York City and worldwide celebrity, you know, without any stain, you know, let's face it, this guy, you know, came out of this unscathed and very few that walked through, you know, the, 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 the days of the life of Derek Jeter, very few guys like that come out unscathed at the end. And to be able to come out on the other end with a wonderful wife, now a wonderful family, uh, and, and be a part of what he's doing now, uh, you know, with his own franchise in Major League Baseball is just a, a tip of the cap and a salute to his upbringing. Obviously, he comes from great stock. Uh, you know, I've, I've had the chance to meet his mom and dad and sister, and, and you could tell, uh, you know, his his roots are very, very strong. So God bless him. Congratulations to Derek, to the captain who always treated me with, and I just from everything I ever saw, treated everyone with a lot of respect. You had to treat him with respect at the same time. It was a two-way street. But my hat's off to him, his family. Congratulations to the captain. And I'll be very, very proud on Wednesday when he goes to the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, this broke with uh, Moose and Maggie back on Thursday when Hurricane Ida rolled through. And just just in case no one has driven down the... um, the Major Deegan recently, it is a car graveyard. Uh, going to the game on Saturday, both sides of the Major Deegan has stalled out cars on the shoulders that 
probably will never run again. That's because they got caught up in the floodwaters from Hurricane Ida. And I don't know if you if you haven't heard yet, you must live under a rock, but we're going to get the story from Ricky himself. <laughs> he actually saved John Sterling's life after Hurricane Ida. So without any further ado, Ricky, take us through it. What happened and, and, and how the hell did it all go down? Well, let me start with the fact that somebody here on this call, you know, didn't have to show up that night. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Who's the luckiest person, you know, in the metropolitan area that was there for? I can't. I can't. uh, You know, my schedule's my schedule. I, 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 they jump. I say how high, and they told me Meredith was coming back. Just so happens (laughs) that one shared doesn't have to show up on the worst weather night we've had in, you know, what, the Superstorm Sandy, maybe. Oh, God. You know, it was comfortably at home uh, watching everything develop on yes, television. Yes, yes, I was. Well, as you know, John is the first one to leave, okay? he Sweeney Murdy does the English language post-game show. I do the Spanish language post-game show, so the routine is that as the game ends, John is about ah, three, four minutes away from being able to leave. I stick around for another 25 to 30 minutes. Now, we were watching. We're we're doing a ball game, but you could tell that the rain was incredible. The inside of Yankee Stadium, the field was a lake. Okay, but we've seen some of that in the past, and the drainage is great. So it's not something that, you know, kind of sticks in your mind. i tell you what, though. We all convene in the men's room, as you know. We, we all have the same, uh, you know, <laughs> we all have the same issues. I'll leave it at that. Well, as soon as the ball game ends, and Michael Kay and John and I were all out, you know, behind our respective booths and over by the men's room there at Yankee Stadium, and Michael said to John, be very, very careful from what I'm seeing and reports are that there's a lot of flooding. Right. And John, it went in one ear and out the other. Yeah, Michael, I got to go home. Bye. See you tomorrow. So, John leaves and he drives a 2021 Cadillac. I didn't think much of it either. I went back in the, in, into my booth. I do the Spanish post-game show, which lasts about 20, 25 minutes. As I'm leaving the garage, well, actually, actually, as I'm leaving Yankee Stadium, the, the lobby where we all depart at gate two is flooded up to your ankle, which I have never seen before. Now, there's water in Yan- inside of Yankee Stadium everywhere. Uh, but by that counter there where you get your parking validated, you know, that lobby was full of water. When I'm leaving the garage, there's a couple of uh, of New York City's finest that, that know me. And they came over to my car as I was putting the ticket in, getting ready to leave the garage. And they said, listen, you can't make the left that you make uh, over to 164th to go around to get back to Jerome. It's already flooded out. And I'm saying to myself, what? Okay. I don't know. They said, make a right, go the other way. The Deegan is now closed. The Deegan is flooded and closed, so I can't get to the GW that way. The Harlem River Drive is now flooded and shut down. I can't get to the bridge that way. So I've got to go over the McCombs Dam Bridge into Upper Manhattan and try to work my way down to the bridge from one of those entrances. They were all flooded out. 158, 163, 168. Everything is flooded out. So as I'm working my way up Broadway, which is the higher point, remember, you know, these are all hills. So I'm up on Broadway going, I figure, well, the best thing I can do is take Broadway all the way up to 179th by the GW bus terminal. and Maybe I can get on the bridge there. As I'm trying to get out of Manhattan myself, I get a phone call from Susan Waldman. Where are you? And then that's Susan. You know, I answer the phone. Where are you? 
you know, well, Susan, I'm, I'm trying to escape from New York myself. Uh, and I explained to her, it, everything is flooded. So I'm having a, a hard time just finding a way to get on the George Washington Bridge. She says, well, when you get over the bridge, John just called me or I just spoke to John, whatever it was. He says, he's stranded on River Road. His car gave out. He can't. It's not starting and the water's rising. And I'm saying to myself, River Road, oh my. River Road, and but that's it, it, John and I take the same route home. I live about a mile from John. In April, guys, an April shower floods River Road, okay? So I can only imagine, I'm starting to picture in my mind how bad it might be after the kind of rain that we had got that night okay? and, and so quickly. So I, I told Susan, I said, look, tell John as soon as I get over the bridge and work my way out of the city, I will call him so he can tell me exactly where he's at, and I'll get over there and try to help him out. I get on the bridge. I start to call John. I can't get through to him. The cell service is now spotty. Okay, it's, it's not even ringing. I finally get a hold of John as I get onto River Road, figure I'm about maybe half a mile from where he eventually was stranded. I get a hold of John. I said, John, where are you? Well, all I can tell you is that I'm right across from a Chinese restaurant. Well, a lot of good that does. I mean, there's a hundred <laughs> Chinese restaurants up and down River Road, okay? So I start trying to, I'm back and forth with him to more or less try to pinpoint where on River Road he's. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that area, but in Edgewater on River Road, there's a marina, and it's at the bottom of a hill. And guys, when I pulled up there, as I got closer and closer, and the water kept getting higher and higher, thank God my G did a tremendous, the MVP of this whole thing is the G. It never gave out. So as I'm getting closer, I, I'm on the phone with John. I'm keeping him engaged. And, you know, if I hang up, I might not be able to get him again. So we're talking and I'm like, John, wh when I look up, there's about 25 stranded cars. They're all over the place and all pointed in different directions. You're talking about a graveyard of cars. They are all over the place at this particular large intersection where Route 5, River Road and the marina all convened. So I'm like, well, amongst all of these cars, which one is John? So I'm telling John, I'm flashing my lights, wave at me, just put your arm out the window. He says, well, the water's getting kind of close to the window. So I finally see his car. I see the license plate. You know, I know it because yeah, I've parked next to him at the, at the stadium garage so often. So I get as close as I can. The water really is, is up to my door now. I get as close as I can to John's car, which is now kaput. It is completely given out. As I'm ready to tell John to come out of the car or I'm going to help him get out, a beverage delivery truck comes by from behind me and drives right through this water and creates like a tsunami wave pool of water. And it's all going toward John's car. So I'm on the phone going, don't open the door, don't open the door. And all this water goes and sways, basically sways his car back and forth. So now we've got to wait a couple minutes for the water to, to, to calm down again. So he's able to open the driver's side door of his car and then wade through the water to get to the passenger side of my car. Okay, the water calms down. Thank you very much, whoever that truck driver was. But, you know, thank you. And, and I'm being sarcastic about that. So finally, the water comes down in, enough to where I pull up my, you know, pants up to my knees. I come around. I open the passenger side door. He opened. I said, John, grab your registration. Grab everything you need because you're not going to see this car again tonight. I, You know, he comes out of his driver's side door. I, I help him out. Remember, he's 83 years old. His, uh, his agility factor is, uh, you know, it's not very high. How high is the water? 
water on your Jeep? Where's the water level on your Jeep? When well, put it this way. When he, when he comes out of his car, the water is almost waist high. My fear is that as the water kept getting higher and higher, if someone would not have come, come around to help him out, I can't imagine what may have happened there because everyone else had abandoned their vehicle. There was all these vehicles that were there. There was nobody in. And John was sitting behind the wheel, not knowing what to do. So as I get him out of his driver's seat, I get him into my Jeep, put him in the passenger seat, get the seat belt on him. Now, this is where the, the adventure really begins because I can't go forward. I mean, River Road is, I'm not even at the bottom of the hill and we're already waist deep in water. And he only lives about a quarter to a half mile up the road from where I picked him up. I figure, look, let's go in reverse here, John. We got to go back up the hill, back up to Fort Lee, back up near the bridge and start again, but from higher ground. Finally, you know, he dries himself off a little bit. I had maybe a towel in the back seat, and he's, you know, a little shell shocked. I mean, I don't blame him. And I said, just calm down. We'll find a way to get you home. It took us an hour through all of these municipalities, Fort Lee, Cliffside Park, Fairview. The streets were closed. Police were sending me the other way. I'm, I'm talking to cops saying, look, come on over here. You see that guy? That's John Sterling. I got to get him. I'm so-and-so. I live around here, too. I've got to find a way to get him to the Alexander, the building where he lives. None of these officers could tell me that there was a clear path. They all helped out. Well, try this way, try that way. Everything was flooded. Streets were blocked. This is a hillside. So now pieces of rock are coming off the hillside and they're landing on the street. So I'm navigating through water, debris, boulders, oh and it's God. pitch black dark because the power's <laughs> out. Okay. And I've got John nervous next to me go, you know, every time we hit a bump, he's, oh, you know, and, he's, and I get it. You know, the, he's still a little shaky from the whole ordeal, getting him into the car. That's flooding, Susan. Me, That's flash flooding, Susan. I, I tell you what, it, uh, I thank you, Ricky. It took me <laughs> an hour. One hour from the time that I got John into my Jeep to get him the quarter to half mile distance-wise where his apartment is. And I'm going, you know, the wrong direction on streets, going in, exit, everything against the grain, just trying to find the driest possible route. And then I'm going basically five miles an hour because I don't want my Jeep to give out. But I was able, thank God, to get him to, to the front door of his building. He was more than gracious, obviously offered to just, you know, you stay here tonight and go home tomorrow. I said, John, I've got a reservation to fly home. It's an off day on Thursday. On off days, as Jeff will tell you, I fly home to Florida. So, I, you know, I've got a reservation on the 7 a.m. flight to Orlando. And now here comes United calling me saying, uh, you're not on that flight anymore. There is no more flight. Everything is canceled. So I worked my way back to my apartment. It took me about 45 minutes to drive from John's apartment to mine. But again, the MVP of the whole thing is the Jeep. It performed great in those conditions. Uh, it was nerve-wracking, but at the same time, it's one of those adventures that we'll treasure for the rest of our lives. From the moment I got John Sterling into my car to the, to the minute I got him to his apartment, it was maybe one of those episodes of Survivor that you see on TV because it really looked like Afghanistan and parts of northern New Jersey with the rocks all over the road. The pavement gave out, so there was a lot of potholes. It was treacherous, but we were able to get it done. Oh, my God. God wow. bless you, Ricky. God bless you. That That's that's an amazing story. And Mr. Sterling, I he's, he's such a great human being, and I know he appreciates everything that you did for him that night. That's just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. No, I, when you're in the moment, you're not even thinking about it. The last thing. 
the last thing that crossed my mind, guys, was that this was going to turn into a news item and, and receive the attention that it's gotten. That is, believe me, not what was crossing we know, you know, through my mind, you're a good dude too, day. Ricky. You're a good dude too, and this just is further proof of that coming to the rescue of John Sterling. I just love Susan. Doesn't ask, "Hey, Ricky, how you doing?" It's Susan. Where, Where are, are you? you? <laughs> Where are you? Yeah. That's, that's, that's typical Susan. Where are you? And, and the first thing that sounds like, oh, what you know? I'm in Manhattan. You know, it all worked out in the end. You know, these are classic personality people and john and susan so look it was a, it was a night that was meant to be i was able to help him out i am so happy that i was able to get to him because the water to those cars that were stranded there in edgewater where i found john the water was already getting up to about window height and i don't know how much further up we could laugh about it ricky but without you we're not laughing about this so that things were sticky but then came ricky there's the home run call right there (laughs) (laughs) um one more thing before we let you go, and I just wanted to bring this up to Nelly and to uh, Jake because I, I, I'm the only one who knows this, but on Sunday, you have kind of a hairy day there, uh, Ricky. You have Eagles at 1 o'clock down in Philly, and then you have the Subway Series finale at uh, City Field. So God bless you on your travels that night on Sunday. Uh, I don't know how the hell you're going to do that. Hopefully the Eagles game doesn't go to overtime. <laughs> Uh, but thank goodness. That- well, how, how about this for a 24-hour period? Saturday night, Yankees at Mets. It starts a little late because of the 9-11 ceremony. So I'll do that game. After the game, I drive to Philadelphia. I will spend the night in the Philly area, Cherry Hill. Go do the Eagles at Falcons game remotely because we're, again, not traveling with the teams because of COVID. That, that has extended in football also to this season. So from Lincoln Financial Field, I'll do the road uh, broadcast of the uh, Eagles-Falcons game, which is a 1 o'clock kickoff. So you figure we'll be done about 4. Post-game show there. Figure about 4.30, the Phillies are playing the Rockies across the street. So, you know, there might be some traffic. There might be some traffic at uh, Citizens Bank Park across the street. Get onto the highway and drive up the turnpike. Now, I got lucky, guys. This is the only Sunday night game coming up this Sunday, Yankees-Mets, that starts at 8.08 instead of 7.08 because it's the U.S. Open men's final. So ESPN that has both of these events gave themselves the cushion of the extra hour in case there's a long five-set drawn-out tennis match in the U.S. Open final. Now, we're not going to go to City Field. I'm going to do it remotely from Yankee Stadium, which makes it, if I had to go to City Field, I'd never make it. But I'll be leaving Philadelphia, figure about 4.30, hopefully not have too much, you know, Philadelphia will be at home watching the Eagles. You know, the, uh, the attendance at Citizens Bank Park may be very low on Sunday afternoon. So if I get on the highway on that bridge, get up the turnpike and get over the GW for the 7.30 pregame of Yankees Mets Sunday night baseball, that'll be the double that I'll be pulling on that day. You figure that how about that? How, how do they not? I mean, it's right across the street. It's in Queens. Why wouldn't they have visiting broadcasts just go over there? No, I'm purposely not going to oh, City Field okay. because I will be at City Field Friday and Saturday. But if I were to try, can you imagine, Jeff? It, it, it's bad enough. Traffic is heavy enough on a Sunday getting over the GW. If I had to go from the GW to the RFK and into Flushing with both those events going on, the U.S. Open final and the baseball at the same time, that's going to be one big bottleneck in Queens. 
I'll never make it. So we're going to do the Sunday night game from Yankee Stadium remotely. And that'll be, that'll be my best shot to be able to pull this off. We're in the bottom of the third, and Ricky has arrived. He's just parked his car. He's in the ballpark. Do you have a replacement if you get there late? Do you have someone to fill in? Yeah, I, my uh, my fill-in partner will be there on standby, uh, just in case. But you fi- I figure, I look at it this way. If I leave Philadelphia at 4.30, I should be at the GW trying to get over the GW by Six six fifteen more or less. Pre-games at seven thirty. So I've got a one hour basic cushion for heavy traffic to get over the GW, get parked in the garage at Yankee Stadium. As long as there's not another Ida or Sandy or anything with a name to it, then God willing I'll be okay and we'll be able to we'll, we'll be able to pull off an NFL and baseball uh, Subway Series, NFL Subway Series doubleheader. Ricky, we'll be keeping our eyes on that Philadelphia-Atlanta game down against the Falcons in Atlanta, and we hope you get everywhere you're going safe. And as always, we appreciate the time. Just a tremendous job, an awesome story on John Sterling, and great stuff on the Yankees as always. We appreciate it, pal. Hey, man, I love being with you guys. You know uh, you know that. Happy Labor Day weekend to everyone. I guess I'll sleep at some point in the month of October or November. <laughs> uh, that's, how, that's how crazy my schedule has been. But as far as all the accolades that I'm receiving for the whole job situation, believe me, I would have done it for any other human being, especially, obviously, for a friend and a colleague. But I'm not deserving of the bouquets being thrown at me. That's just who mom and dad raised me to be. That says goodnight to episode 84, the Albert Abreu edition of the Pinstripe Pod, our Yankees podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown and Brian Mungia for producing the show. Go on Apple Podcasts right now. Give us a five-star rating. Write in a positive review. We do appreciate it. You can also find us on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. For Jeff Nelson, I'm Chris Sheeran. We are back on Thursday to preview the Subway Series weekend ahead in Queens. And remember the tragic events of 9-11. 20 years later. Thanks for listening to the Pinstripe Pod.